Not Quite Right for Us by Speaking Volumes is a podcast series showcasing innovative and diverse writers from underrepresented communities reflecting on experiences of outsiderness and their defiance against it. Not Quite Right for Us is based on an anthology of the same name, which is published by Speaking Volumes and Flipped High Publishing. In this episode, we'll hear Hey Coffee by Catherine Johnson, Lessons in Arseholery by Jay Bernard, and The Freshy Rocker by Afshan D'Souza Lodi. Our guide is children's author and illustrator, Ken Wilson-Max. Childhood is the time when new humans explore everything. They ask everything and they start to pick up the way human life is in a very, very top level, very basic way. It's also a time for enormous bravery and exploration and adventure before their brains start moving to another layer of self-preservation or worry or anxiety. It's a completely free and open time for you. It's probably the freest time they've ever been to have in their lives. Where on the curriculum does it say what a child should do next? Whatever anyone thinks, however anybody might see me, wherever anyone wants to pigeonhole me, I know I'm here. And people like me have always been here. This episode of Not Quite Right For Us is about childhood. I'm an author and illustrator and a publisher. I'm originally from Zimbabwe, but I'm based in London in the UK. So I'm not a particularly good writer or illustrator, but when I put them all together, I find I can tell the best types of stories. For me, they're all part of the same thing. They're all part of the one way that I have of telling stories. They're also connected to an oral history that I have. So when I was young, I was told stories more than I read them. And so I wanted to find a way to pass it on to young children. It's not because it was particularly African or anything to do with that. It was just that I have a large family and there were always visitors around and there was always an aunt or a family friend or one of my parents telling stories, basically. And that's how we picked them up. There weren't many books in the house, I must say. There weren't many books for children as, as such. So we listened to stories or we made them up or we played scenarios, but it was all based on listening and performing rather than reading and writing. Even if they had the same story to tell, it was so different because each one of them would put into it their own flavor, their own feeling. And we were constantly hearing about the world through someone else's excitement or whatever the emotion was. And I think that's what we picked up on without realizing. Hey, Coffee by Katherine Johnson. I have a charmed life. 
I was born not long after the midpoint of the 20th century, where children went everywhere on their own. I spent long days on the covered reservoir or playing over the allotments or in the gardens of derelict houses, in places where the grass was so long you could make dens and no one would know you were there. My parents were warned not to have children. We would be, at the very least, mad. It was unfair. We'd not be one thing or the other. No one would want us, not white people, not black people. We'd be confused. But Mum said, isn't everyone? My mum loved showing me off. She dressed me in white and yellow. She cut my hair short so she didn't have to brush it. And both my parents made me feel I was more than good enough. At home, the world was at my feet. And I'm definitely the glass half full sort of woman. The universe has been kind. I've been blessed so far with health, symmetrical features and a dollop of good luck. I may no longer be a marriageable woman, but I'm happy in my skin. I'm light-skinned brown, the sort of brown that screams citizen of everywhere or nowhere. A high yellow woman with good hair, the sort of hair, the sort of curls for elderly women who like perms and mire. An acceptable shade of tan. People, white people, stop me in the street, lean over in the train, or they did in the before times, and tell me what a lovely colour I am, just the shade they like. Once, the year before last summer, I was driving at a T-junction... Arm along the sill, the window sill, when two women staggered off a bus, vodka bottles in hand. They lurched towards me in a drunken run. I wished for a gap in the traffic. None. To a chance to pull away. None came. The first woman to reach me leaned down, her arm on my arm, grinning like she'd discovered cold fusion or perpetual motion. This colour, see! She looked from me to our arms, brown skin against white, to her mate hurrying to catch up. That's the colour I want. I did not flinch. I knew not to. I kept a sort of smile on my face and drove away as soon as I could. Half funny, half odd, half in that moment when I clocked the two of them drunken and closing in. Scary. And that sums it up, really. Every reaction, every interaction... I think it's about keeping your face straight, making sure your cast iron heart is mostly impervious and hoping that glass half full doesn't get smashed in your face. Of course, I'm so much more of what people want than my parents were. No one has refused me a flat or a home. No one has told me not to marry whoever or not allowed me access to contraception. I have one of those faces that could be anything. Whatever you project... Israeli, Moroccan, Tahitian, Javan, everything or nothing. And now, at my age, in these times, it's easier. I present as nice, middle-class, grey-haired divorcee, likes ponies, swimming, knitting, cinema, good food, wine sometimes. I know who I am now, and I've taken to calling myself English. Both parents would be very upset at this. But surely that's what I am. I'm not a Londoner anymore. I live in Hastings. I am thoroughly, entirely to the tips of my fingers, one of the Angle folk, a sister through time to Beachy Head woman across the bay in Eastbourne, here to stay, even if I'm not quite what anyone wants. In the last sort of decade, I've focused more on the stories that I can remember from the things I did as a young boy and the people that were around me. So I, I stick to people. I'm not one to write stories about animals or fantasies or things like that for children. I tend to 
write about how grown-ups and children are with each other or how children and children are with each other or children and animals. But it's always people first. What I do always remember was how I felt like I was kind of sponging in that emotion. It was just coming to me. Somehow, I think in a very strange way, translated into the illustrations that I do, which are for very, very young children, by the way. So they have to be simple by nature. But I do work on communicating small moments between particularly two people, capturing that look or that feeling. Speaking volumes represents the kind of creative culture of the smaller communities in the UK. And I think they specialize in it. And they're very good at what they do, I think. They have a very organized way of doing what they're doing. Organizations like that need to exist because of the fact that no one else is going to do it, let's say, for that, for that section of the media. There is a bigger underrepresentation. I mean, we focus on publishing books, other people do films and radio, television, you know, but there's no one who's actually generally promoting the stuff as effectively as them. They're clocking up very good experience on how to do that. Lessons in Assholery by Jay Bernard. History. What causes me to type your name? It's late, and I am three beers in when you appear. A genie of the search terms. You plus London, your last name plus dead, you plus our old school. Now I know of time as tin opener, cuts in circles, leaves a hinge. The grey waters that we pour away. Had someone thought to teach a class on love? I might know you. Geography. We sometimes walk the back way home past my house so I could shake you off. Right now, I want to make this the story of two working class kids, but there are degrees to work in class. And I am pissed off with or ashamed by the two up, two down fantasy. When the truth is that after Pokemon, I'd kick you out because if my mother met you, like the time when we got to your door, and your mother dragged you in by the neck. Where in the curriculum does it say what a child should do next? Drama. No longer hungry, I stand up in the dining hall and offer my meal to the poorest student in my class. Music. Between Googles, I watch compilation videos of top 10 worst auditions for X Factor, I don't find it funny, just compelling, like folk art. Almost all of them are mentally ill in one way or another, and almost all of them confess this right away in their teeth, their shitty style, their choice of song, and most of them are poor. The interesting bit is when they're done and Simon asks, what was that? And they say they might not be the best singer now, but they've got potential. I don't think many of them are looking for fame, really, but want to be taken on, fed, trained, blow-dried like a Pomeranian but they've bit their nails to porridge, their feet sweat through their shoes. And Simon says, you can't sing, just as I once told a girl in my class that she would amount to nothing. And in the heat that ensues, their argument is less whether they can reach the crescendo of I will always love you, but if someone treated them nicely, they could. PSHE. I was sent an email once 
by someone explaining that they would not help me because I was flaky, inconsistent, rude, non-collegiate, unworthy of anything I had. He too was from Carandon, my old ancestral land, and for a second I feared the Old Testament God, who still reigns there, had reversed my salvation. I was extremely surprised, amazed, and even dumbfounded, to be very honest. Against my own will, I found myself wondering how you could be working there, and more astonishingly, keeping the position. But so far, you seem to be doing well there, so my warmest congratulations. The world tells you everything that will happen. I knew then what I know now. The heart has a tendency to plump in advance of a laceration. Dance. Walking home through Spitalfields, a man shakes his bucket for mental health. I have no cash, so I refuse. He doesn't care about the change. He seems to know what I have done. You people are unbearable, you know that? You people around here are unbearable. The stories we don't tell or the stories we don't hear are the ones that give history that more polished, finished and authentic kind of shape and, and feel. History is really under pressure at the moment because there are clear omissions that are being looked at at the moment. We have to talk about historians and why they didn't include these things before. As we all can realize, all countries have another country's voice in their history, it seems. You know, there's very few countries that have just got one voice all the way through from the beginning of time. Those are the key words, the deeper understanding of it all. Change was happening not just to one side. This is what historians somehow missed. The question is whether it was missed on purpose or whether it wasn't seen as important enough, because it certainly is important now. As we are growing up and experiencing life and being asked to empathize more and more, of course we want to know what it's like from another side as well. So the whole of history can be rewritten with this wider lens. They just have another point of view to add to make that story richer. That should be told and told and told. I mean, we have the great Victoria Falls there. When I was young, I grew up around that area. When I went back, as a grown-up, there were still some of the old people that remembered me from my childhood. And they used to talk a lot to me about the fact that why is it called Victoria Falls? It has a name. Musiwatunya, it was called in the local Ndao language. The smoke that thunders. As you approach it, as you're about half a mile away, the ground shakes. That's how powerful the falls are. Then you go through a rainforest. It's a very dry area. And you realize when you get to the falls, that rainforest is caused by the spray of the falls going all the way up <laughs> and hitting this little area a few hundred meters in size. And then you get there and it's, it doesn't have any built-up areas. It's got thickets and fences made out of twigs. They've preserved it quite well, almost as it was. It's all little trails and paths. You really feel like you're seeing something new. As I say, by the time you get there, you've already had this rumbling. You can feel it over your whole body. It's quite emotional, I must say. I do love that more than anything else. The only thing that's built up there is a statue of Cecil John Rhodes. The idea of taking down a statue is powerful, but the idea of putting more information underneath the statue that's standing there would also be quite powerful. A long, you know, full story of this person.
those things are quite integral to how we move forward. The world is also getting more and more mixed. More cultures are mixing with other cultures. It's going to be very important to know what your story is, where it comes from. All those things need to be told so that the person who's living the life with this new culture has some grounding or some references for them to work out how best to move forward. The Freshy Rocker by Afshan D'Souza Lodi. This year is the second year in my life that I'm sporting an undercut, a type of hairstyle that features shaving a large portion of your head. Because the shaved part of the head is usually the underlayer near the nape of the neck or to one side, it's pretty easy to hide with long hair. And that's exactly what I've done, hidden it. From my mum, from the nosy aunties who stalk my Instagram and the uncles who hang about the meat shop. It's really silly to think that I meticulously shaved or rather strong-armed my friend into meticulously shaving the underside of my head, only for me to spend most of my time with my hair down hiding the shave part. I just know that in Manchester in 2020, we this is haven't reached a point where we can sport a shaved or even partially shaved hairstyle. I wasn't always like this, a wannabe rocker. There was a moment when I could have been identified as an uncool freshie. I was 13 when my dad gave me an MP3 player. He told me it was like an iPod, but better. This one had speakers attached to it so that when you took the headphones out, you could blast your music. Who needed headphones players? Here I could go into detail about a certain incident, but honestly, it still makes me nauseous. All I'll say is that it involved my high school crush, a public bus, some cringe Bollywood music, and the not an iPod MP3 player. That was the last time I used it. But it was also the first time I used LimeWire to download the most recent edition of Now That's What I Call Music. Never again would I be caught listening to high-pitched tones over double beats in public. I wasn't old enough or politically aware enough to understand the term assimilation, but in hindsight, that's what it was. I did not want to be singled out for being different. I was already one of only two hijabis in the school and the other one was much cooler than me. I remember the first time I listened to rock music. My friend Charlotte bent me a mixtape of some CDs titled Songs to Get Angry To, featuring rock and heavy metal. This is how I was introduced to Nirvana, Linkin Park, Red, Jutesum, Red Jumpsuit Apparatus, Blink-182, Papa Roach and Blue October. From there, it was a short jump to Five Finger Death Punch and Rammstein. This music made me angry, made me want to scream, but in a cathartic way. I felt safe and protected, even while listening to it. Eventually, my ringtones would be replaced with heavy guitar strumming, and I'd wake up to I Choose Death Before Dishonor and start my day. I used to wonder if people could hear the screaming through my headphones. Luckily for me, my hijab style back then consisted of wrapping thick material round and round my head pretty tightly, creating a soundproofing effect. I don't think I'd ever thought too deeply about the lyrics. I just really liked how I could zone out to the noise. This is a complete contrast to the Bollywood music I'd grown up listening to. Pretty soon my wardrobe began to change too. Leather jackets, new rocks on my feet, I even invested in some chains for my hijab. I was determined to look the part and fit in. The first concert I went to was Rammstein. I got all kitted out in a faux leather skirt, some ripped tights and a choker. 
I turned up with my friend at the O2, but it was only when we were walking up the stairs to our seats that I realised that everybody around me was white. The whole venue was full of industrial metal fans and I struggled to find one person of colour. A few months later, I went to see Marilyn Manson and exactly the same thing happened. A full arena and not a single person of colour in sight. As we left that concert, someone spilled a glass of beer on me. It was most probably an accident, but that small act suddenly made the space unsafe. I didn't go to a mosh pit again after that. Something didn't quite feel right. I started questioning the politics and the race of the musicians. Suddenly I became hyper aware of the alt-right and neo-Nazis and their chosen anthems, all metal. My love for the music eventually died down, yet the aesthetic stayed. I tried hard to find punk and rock bands that had people of colour in them, particularly Desis, but it seemed like punk wasn't something Desis did. And then I came across the Caminas. The Caminas did for me what those first CDs from Charlotte had done. They provided me with a safe space to be Desi and Muslim and punk, to be able to swear and scream and headbang. The Caminas allowed me back into the punk and rock spheres without feeling like I was sympathising with the alt-right. The only problem was that they were based in the United States. I couldn't find a community here in Manchester. I moved back in with my parents and had to tone down my rock chick look massively. None of my Desi friends were into it. They didn't really get why I wanted to shave my head or understand the appeal of a scaffold piercing. My ripped denim jeans were replaced with kurtas, my leather chains and cuffs with gold bangles. In the mainstream, we started seeing Desi influencers and models. Sari inspired clothing and bindis made their way through hipster clubs and festivals and into fashion weeks. I didn't have time to mourn the loss of the leather. I had a new obsession. You've been listening to Catherine Johnson, Jay Bernard and Afshan D'Souza Lodi with Ken Wilson-Max and Lucy Hanna. Music composed by Dominique Lejean. Speaking Volumes presents and promotes new and underrepresented voices to diverse audiences. The Not Quite Right For Us anthology celebrates 10 years of Speaking Volumes. It's published by Flip Die Publishing and it features 40 international writers. The anthology is available at all good bookshops or you can order from Flip Die at www.flipdie.net. For more information about Speaking Volumes, go to www.speakingvolumes.org.uk. The Not Quite Right For Us podcast is produced by Craig Garrett and Shona Hawkes in collaboration with Speaking Volumes.